Praise the Lord. Glad to be here tonight. I'm used, used to uh, preaching in the morning for the last couple months, so this will be a little different. But I'm awake right now. Praise the Lord. And so are my kids, that's for sure. They're back there running around. And glad you're here. Um, I know some people are sick today. We're still getting over something, but I think right before we left, Leah said she was, her phone was blowing up with people. Oh, I can't make it tonight. Oh, we're not feeling good. Pray for us. So I want to lift them all up in prayer as we um, get into the word here. So let's go ahead and pray again. Father, thank you, Lord, that we can gather together and worship you and praise your holy name. We pray, Lord, that you would be with those who are sick tonight, Lord, those that are under the weather that aren't feeling well. Lord, we pray for healing, pray for comfort, pray, Lord, that you would be their joy and strength and for um, just quick healing, Lord, your, and that your perfect will would be done. Thank you, Lord, for those of us that are here and that we're able to get together and get into your word tonight. Pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would encourage us, Lord, that you would lift our hearts up and lift our heads to heaven, that we would fix our eyes on you, Lord, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before you, you endured the cross, despising the shame, and you're seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus. We thank you that you're ruling and reigning, that you're in charge of all things, and that you're working out all things together for the good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So we love you, Lord. We praise your holy name and pray that you would speak to our hearts right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Title of tonight's teaching is Jesus is Greater. Yesterday, as I was putting together this teaching, my lovely wife, Leah, barged into my office and she said, what is next on the fruits of the Holy Spirit? What are you teaching on tomorrow on the fruit of the Holy Spirit? She was excited to keep going through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It would have been goodness, but we'll get to goodness at some point, I think. But I reminded her, hey, it's Christmas. Remember, it's Christmas this weekend. And that shows you where our minds have been lately. A little busy, kids sick, running around the house different things going on. But then once I told her it's Christmas and I'm going to try to put together a Christmas message, then she began sharing, almost preaching at me, which is which we husbands need at times. Um, women can't preach in the church, according to scripture, but they can preach at home to us and we need that. And so she said, what about the wise men? Teach on the wise men and how they traveled so far and sacrificed so much to go and visit Jesus to worship him and how we need a sacrifice and follow in their footsteps, so to speak. And she had a really good message. And maybe next year for that one, because I don't know if I'm going to go in that direction tonight. But it did get me thinking and searching a little bit. And how far did the, those wise men actually travel? And most scholars believe 400 to 900 miles. It was mostly by you know donkey or camelback. And they didn't exactly have seat warmers on those camels back then. So it was quite a trek that they made to go and worship Jesus. And so as we read through scripture and even as we ponder about how Mary and Joseph, how far they traveled to, as we'll read in a little bit, when they when she gave birth to Jesus, just what that all entailed, and even being pregnant and traveling that far, many women could die during or before childbirth in those days. They didn't have cars and airplanes and all the travel that we have today. So, the holiday known as Christmas 
It's celebrated, some estimates say, by 2 billion people around the world in 160 countries. Some say it's the most celebrated, the most celebrated holiday in the world, Christmas. If you count New Year's as a holiday, they're pretty close. I was looking up different traditions around the world that different countries partake during the Christmas holiday. In Japan, they have a tradition that's developed over the last several decades where around four million Japanese people eat KFC during Christmas time. <laughs> Kentucky Fried Chicken. It was some master plan and advertising scheme that they put out in the 70s and it just took effect all over Japan. And so that's what they do there. In Slovakia, in many parts, and in many parts of Central Europe, they enjoy carp for dinner. The traditionalists let the fish live in the bathtub for a couple of days before preparing and eating it. Didn't know that. Some of them believed it brought good luck. Kind of silly, I think. In Greece, they celebrate by decorating these massive trees and these large boats. And in cities like Athens and Thessalonica, they have these large boats right alongside. And you can see pictures online um, of these trees and boats. That's their thing. One more. In Australia, guess what? In Australia, it's like 90 degrees right now in most of Australia. If you've checked weather around the world, which I do, especially when it, my weather app tells me it feels like five degrees outside, I want to see what's going on around the world. And in Australia right now, it's pretty much summer. And so they celebrate Christmas, according to one article, by going to the beach and barbecuing. And this article said they still sing White Christmas, although they're never going to see one outside their front door. But we do, right? We're getting a lot of snow right now, which is quite exciting for most of us. But around the world, they have hundreds of different traditions that have sprung up over the years surrounding Christmas. And for us, it's probably pretty similar, at least for us in this room, maybe a little bit different, but Christmas lights, Christmas trees, exchanging gifts, eating good food, hopefully, not carp, watching football, maybe, playing football, watching sports, playing in the snow, spending time with your family and friends, maybe eggnog, maybe chocolate milk, maybe coffee, maybe a warm fire. I don't know. Fill in the blank. We all have different traditions, different things that we do this time of year. According to a 2017 Pew Research poll, 90% or 9 out of 10 Americans celebrate Christmas. Yet 46% of Americans say they celebrate Christmas as primarily a religious holiday. That's down from 51% in 2013. So for many, they enjoy and love Christmas because of the festivities, because of the traditions, and only because of that. And that article went on to give other statistics that 66% of Americans believe Jesus was born of a virgin. Some 75% believe Jesus was laid in a manger. 68% believe that the wise men were guided by a star, brought gifts to Jesus. 67% of Americans believe an angel announced the birth of Jesus. And 57% believe all four of those things. So around half of America would say Jesus was born a virgin, laid in a manger, it was announced by an angel, and the wise men brought gifts. 57%, and all those numbers were down from 2013. And this was in 2017, we're in 2022. I'm sure the numbers are still going down 
even today because we live in this scientific age. If you talk to many people on the streets, that's what they'll say. If you read some scripture to them, share scripture with them, share the story of Christ to them, share the gospel with them, they're enlightened today. They have knowledge. They're, they're studied. Many of them, even if you go down to Boise, they'd say oh, they're studying in college and they're very wise. And so we've moved past this old archaic book. And later on, I'm going to look at a passage that I think has some relevance to that. But I love Christmas. It's one of my favorite times of the year. And I'm so thankful that we have freedom in Christ to celebrate in different fashions, right? We all have different traditions and different things that we do, different festivities, different games maybe. And we can do this as our consciences allow. If you want to get a tree, great. And if you don't want to get a tree, that's okay too. And if you want to eat KFC with your family, that's great. And if you don't, you want to eat something else, that's great too. And if you want to eat carp or whatever you want to do, as long as it's not sin and you're enjoying it, praise the Lord. That's what's exciting about the holidays. 1 Timothy 6.17 says that God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. It's all for, it's all for our good for his glory, for our enjoyment. And Romans 14.5 says, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. So some Christians will even say, I don't really want to get involved in all these festivities. I don't want a Christmas tree. I don't even really want to like focus so much on the birth of Christ. And it's like, okay, if you're convinced in your mind of that, that's fine. But for those of us that want to grab a tree and want to eat this and that and want to watch football, praise the Lord. We can all get along in Christ as our consciences allow. So it's a great time of enjoyment. It's a great time of year. And of course, the greatest part about all of it is Jesus Christ and him coming into the world and nothing else comes close to what we have in here in him. My son Leland, as we were sitting on the couch the other day and our trees next to us, presents all around. It kind of seemed out of nowhere. This is what my son Leland said. He said, when we get to heaven, we'll realize this was, this is all junk. <laughs> and he's kind of looking at all the presents. He says, when we get to heaven, this, we'll realize this is all just junk. And he said it like that. And I don't think it's that he's disappointed in the presents he's gotten so far, or even in the ones hopefully that he's going to get. But it was, it was pretty cool when my son or my daughter just throw things out there like that. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. When we get to heaven, when we're with Jesus, when he's blessing us tremendously, we're going to look back and go, yeah, compared to him and what he give, will give us, it is a bunch of junk, isn't it? But it's still awesome to enjoy it now. And they're all gifts from him. If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 2, I want to get into the word. Luke chapter 2, I want to read Luke's version of the birth of Christ. We have the four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew hits on the wise men. He really hammers home with the wise men and Herod, and he takes the story from a different angle. Mark, if you read the Gospel of Mark, you're starting with Jesus right around 30 years old. You don't have any of this in the manger, birth of Christ. It's pretty much he's on the scene. He's getting baptized by John the Baptist. You go to the Gospel of John. He goes back further than all of them. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. 
So he's, he talks about how Jesus is eternal. He goes even prior to Jesus coming into the world. But in Luke, he's going to touch on a couple things that we don't find in any of the other Gospels, as we're going to read right now. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this story, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each verse and do an exegetical study walking through the entire passage, but there's four parts of this story that stuck out to me and four things that I'm going to particularly hone in on, and the first is Caesar Augustus, and we'll talk about him in just a minute, and we'll talk about David, the types and shadows of David and Bethlehem, and we'll also talk about the shepherds because the shepherds we see only here in Luke. We don't see the shepherds mentioned in Matthew. Caesar Augustus, this is the only time he's mentioned in all of scripture in verse one. I wanna unpack who he is and compare him to Jesus. It's fascinating, the manger, there's no room for him in the inn. Hallmark cards and movies have done many things to put makeup, so to speak, all over this passage to butter it up, to make it, here's these three wonderful wise men. It looks like they just got out of their cars with the heater on and they're walking up with gold frankincense and myrrh and forgetting that they've just traveled perhaps for months. They're wearied, they're tired, bringing gifts to Jesus as the passage tells us in Matthew. But here, the manger, there was no room for them in the inn. Luke 
Luke is mentioning things that aren't mentioned in any of the other Gospels. And I think particularly Luke wants to show us the humble beginnings of Jesus. And we'll see that in just a minute here. Verse 1, we see that a decree went out. A decree in Greek is a dogma. It's an ordinance. It's a law that was sent out. You must go to your hometown from those of your ancestors, your, your lineage, and that's where Joseph and Mary go, to Bethlehem because of this decree. Now Caesar Augustus, he's actually the, the nephew of Julius Caesar, and he obtained this name Augustus later in life, which means honorable or the revered one. It's where we actually get the month August from Caesar Augustus. I didn't know that. Perhaps you didn't either. But little, little does this emperor know that he's playing right into the hand of the Lord. Here he puts out this decree, this tax, as it says in the King James census, as it says in most translations, it's a enrollment, a registration so that he can count how many people are in the Roman empire and then therefore make money off them, control them and gain more power over them. So as he's trying to pad his pockets and sets out this decree, little does he know he's playing right into the hand of the Lord, into the providence of the Lord. Cause it just so happens that Joseph and Mary, right, are from the family of David and they need to get down to Bethlehem. And it just so happens that Mary's at the time where she's ready to give birth. And it just so happens that there's this prophecy in the Old Testament concerning where a Messiah is going to be born. And it just so happens that it's in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphratha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Some translations say from everlasting. Who could this be? And it just so happens that Caesar, August, Caesar Augustus is prompted to put out this decree at just the right time. So the first thing I want to look at in this passage is the lesser king, Caesar Augustus, and the greater king. Of course, Jesus, the lesser king thinks he's great, takes on the name honorable, the revered one, Augustus, to compliment his own greatness. But the greater king shows forth his greatness by entering the world in humble submission, humble submission to his heavenly father. And he's willing to be born in a manger. It's actually translated feeding trough, right? He's a helpless baby, and he does this because he came to serve. He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said later on in Matthew 20, 26, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. In Luke 9, 48, he who is least among you, this is the one who is great. In the beautiful passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, who although he existed in the very form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a man and being made in the likeness of a man and a bondservant. He was willing to die, it goes on to say, the death on a cross. So he humbled himself in our fashion. He became like us. He humbled himself so that he could show us what it means to be low, 
so that we could be great in him. He gave us an example to follow after, to show us true greatness. So the lesser king thinks he's great, puts out a decree to amass more riches and subjugate more people, while the greater king decreed long ago that he's to be born in Bethlehem and use this lesser decree to go forth right into his plan of the greater decree. So, and furthermore, the, this lesser king, he amassed much riches during his life. If you read any articles on Caesar Augustus, they'll say he amassed in our day and age, in, our, in the finances that we have today, if you compare them to back then, $4.6 trillion is what he was worth. $4.6 trillion. Article titled, Richest Men in History, Vladimir Putin, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett aren't even close. It's an article in marketwatch.com. It says that Caesar Augustus was worth $4.6 trillion. And according to Ian Morris, Augustus personally owned all of Egypt. The whole country of Egypt was his, everything in it. Yet, he died and left it all behind, right? The greater king was born in a manger, yet he owns all things. Now and forevermore, he owns all things. He owns Egypt. He owns the lesser king. He owns the whole world. Along with owning everything, he created everything. And it's all his. $4.6 trillion is a drop in the bucket compared to his wealth. Listen to Colossians 1.16. For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. John 1.3 says that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And Ephesians 3.8 states the riches of Christ are unsearchable. In other words, there's no limits to the riches of Christ. So 4.6 trillion Christ says the universe is mine, everything. And in Luke eleven thirty one, when Jesus is speaking, I believe with the religious leaders and those who are revering Solomon and, and many times in the gospels, they're looking up to Abraham and Moses. This is what Jesus says to them in Luke eleven thirty one: Something greater than Solomon is here. You think Solomon was wealthy? You think David was wealthy? You think Caesar Augustus is wealthy? Jesus, is, Jesus says, I'm greater than all of them. So the lesser king collected many titles in his life. And according to history.com, these are some of his titles. The Pontificus Maximus, the chief priest. He was given the title Princeps, the first citizen. He was given the title Imperator, the commander in chief. And Divi Filius, the son of God. He received this title, the son of God after being deified by the Senate. Yet the greater king is the true son of God. Luke 1, and unlike the lesser king, he's not dead but alive. He's ruling and reigning. His kingdom has no end, Luke 1, He's the great high priest, Hebrews 4, 4. And more than a first citizen, the scripture tells us he's the alpha and the omega. He's the first, he's the last. He's the beginning and the end. And the end, he's from everlasting to everlasting. Revelation 22, 13. He's the firstborn from the dead, Colossians 1.18. He's, he's the commander of the armies 
of heaven who is coming back again, the true King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 19, 14 through 16. And lastly, finally, the lesser king who during his life would accept the praise of many. These Caesars would have people come down and bow to them and say Caesar is Lord and offer a pinch of incense to them. He worshiped the praise of men, even given the title Savior of the world. Yet he ushered in the greater king's arrival, the true Savior, Christ the Lord, as we just read in Luke 2.11. And the lesser king, like everyone else, will bow the knee on that day to the greater king. And as it says in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, every knee will bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of God the Father. So, he, so some men bowed their knee to Caesar Augustus during his life. Every knee will bow, Caesar Augustus included, will bow the knee to Jesus as Lord. King of kings, Lord of lords, worthy of all honor and praise. He didn't stay in the manger. He's alive today. So in this passage, there's so much going on. A lot of these things I didn't know about Caesar Augustus. Perhaps you didn't either. But I believe Luke is showing us something. That yes, Jesus had hum a humble beginning. Yes, he was born in a manger. Yes, there wasn't room for him in an inn. And there's even more that we can unpack from that and we'll unpack in just a minute. But many, especially at the time that this original gospel was written, probably thought, wow, Caesar Augustus, look at how amazing he is. And Luke's showing and saying, I believe, no, look at how amazing Jesus is, that the king of the universe, the one who was in the form of God, was willing to be born in a manger, was willing to humble himself in this way. Quite amazing. So we see the word Nazareth, the city Nazareth here in verse 4. Many of you know that Nazareth was a know-nothing place. Most scholars believe there was a couple hundred people that lived in this city, Nazareth. But that plays into Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, Daniel 9, and Zechariah 12, where the scripture states that Jesus will be despised and rejected of men. And if you remember John 1:46, Nathaniel said this about Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So that's where his parents are from, Nazareth. He's born in this manger, as we've read. Now I want to talk about David. Talked about Caesar Augustus, the lesser king. Let's talk about a, another lesser king, David. I want to look at some comparisons from the story of David when he's anointed king and the story that we just read here in Luke 2. So if you'll turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. You could probably do several studies just looking at the similarities and the types and the shadows of David and how they were fulfilled in Jesus. 1 Samuel chapter 16. I want to read the first 12 verses or so. It says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 1, now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. 
But Samuel said, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And you shall invite Jesse to to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? And he said, in peace, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Then it came about when they entered that he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Next, Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and beautiful eyes and handsome in appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And one more verse, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from the day forward, and Samuel arose and went to Ramah. We see some similarities here between Luke chapter 2, when Jesus comes on the scene. He's given the title Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, Lord. Christ means anointed one. And here, Samuel is sent to anoint David as king, although he doesn't know it's going to be David. So he walks into this room thinking that it's one of his brothers or several of his brothers. And let, me, let me give you four similarities that I see in these passages. First one being God sends a messenger to Bethlehem. In 1 Samuel 16, he sends Samuel. In Luke chapter 2, he sends an angel. And these, messen- these messengers have an announcement to make. And so Samuel makes this announcement that he's there to anoint someone. And the angel comes and makes this announcement and says, I'm here to pronounce Jesus, the anointed one, son of the most high God, king of kings, Lord of lords. Point number two, when the messenger arrives, we see fear and trembling. First Samuel 16, four says, and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? What happened when the angels came? It actually says angel at first, and then it says angels later on in Luke chapter two. What are the shepherds' response? Terrified, trembling, fearful. Then the angel actually says, do not be afraid. And later on, the angel talks about peace. Could have added another point here, possibly on verse five, in verse five of 1 Samuel 16, where Samuel says, I come in peace. Don't be afraid. Don't be terrified. I'm here in peace. But I thought I might be reaching a little bit, so I didn't include that. Perhaps there's more. Point number three, where's David at initially? Is there room for him at this dinner? 
No, there's no room for him, so to speak. David is initially overlooked. He's left out, as we saw in verse 8. He's out tending the field. He's a shepherd. And we saw that in verse 11 as well. Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Where's Jesus born? He's born in a manger. Why? There's no room for him in the inn. He's overlooked, just as David was. Point number four. David is anointed in the midst of who? He's anointed in the midst of his brothers. 1 Samuel 16, 13. Luke chapter 2, verse 17. The announcement comes that Jesus is the anointed one and the shepherds come. These shepherds that I believe were awaiting Christ, were looking for the consolation of Israel, praying to God. They were his brothers and here they are around him. And it says at the end of Luke chapter 2 that they announced to Mary and Joseph in the presence of Jesus that he was the Savior, Christ, the Anointed One. And so we just see these similarities all throughout the Old Testament. We go on and on through the life of David and many other places to see all these types and shadows and how they are fulfilled in Christ. I want to talk about the shepherds now. The shepherds, Greek word, poimen. It's where we get the English word pastor. In Latin, it means pastor. Here are these shepherds. It says they're out at the, in the field at night watching over the sheep. The announcement doesn't come to the rich and the famous, the glamorous, the mighty. The announcement doesn't go out to King Herod. The announcement doesn't go out to Caesar Augustus or Quirinius or the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The announcement of Christ, the good news, goes out to these shepherds. Scripture says that God gives grace to the humble. He rejects the proud. Listen to what Matthew Henry says about this announcement going out to the shepherds. He says the angels were heralds of the newborn Savior, but they were only sent to some poor, humble, pious, industrious shepherds who were in the business of their calling, keeping watch over the flock. We are not out of the way of divine visits when we are employed in an honest calling and abide with God in it. They were just busy doing what God had called them to do, this humble means of financial gain of just watching the sheep out at night, and God appeared to them through this angel with this message of good news, verses 10 and 11. I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news. The Greek word is euan galizo, proclaiming the good news, literally gospelizing. They've come to gospelize, is what the angel said to them. We've come to gospelize you, to share the good news. This wasn't any normal night. I imagine as shepherds, some of the nights perhaps were boring. Just sitting there, counting the stars. I worked an overnight shift for six years, several years driving in an ambulance around the city of Los Angeles. Many nights of, that I've tried to forget. Many uneventful nights. And I imagine that's how it was for these shepherds, unless maybe a, a random wolf or bear or lion, as David mentions in the Old Testament, would come on in and try to steal the sheep. And if they were truly doing their job, they were to step in to do whatever they could to protect the sheep. That's what a shepherd does, right? But this wasn't any normal night. It was a night that they would always remember. 
And perhaps these shepherds, as I mentioned, were crying out to the Lord. Perhaps they were praying. Perhaps they were doing what the shepherd in the Old Testament, David, was doing in Psalm 63, 6, where he says, I meditate on you in the night watches. And in Psalm 119, 148, my eyes anticipate the watches of night that I may meditate on your word. And that's what I believe was going on there. They're meditating on the Lord. The Lord heard their cry and made this announcement to them. Ellicott's commentary states this, quote, analogy suggests the thought that it was an answer to their prayers, the fulfillment of their hopes, that they too were looking for the consolation of Israel. We may venture perhaps to think of the shepherds of Bethlehem as cherishing the traditions of David's shepherd life and the expectations, which as we know from Matthew 2.5 and John 7.42, were then current through Judea, that the coming of Christ was not far off. Many believe that that time was coming and was right at hand, as these shepherds, I believe, did. The last point I want to make about this text is the significance of the name and the setting of where it takes place, Bethlehem. In the Hebrew, Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethel, house of God. Lehem, bread, the house of bread. The city by which God feeds the rest of the world, Bethlehem. And how does God feed the world through this city? But through his son, who is called the true bread that came down from heaven. If you'll turn with me to one more passage, John chapter 6. I've been reading through John chapter 6 a little bit, my private time. There's a verse that I'm going to read here in a minute that really stood out to me. And as I was putting together this message, I thought it correlated quite well. John chapter 6, verse 32. John 6, 32. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Now listen to what the Jews say in verse 34. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. They were hungry, so to speak. They were ready. What's the answer, Jesus? Where is this bread? Tell us. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. He points the attention to himself. I am the bread that came down from heaven. And he goes on to say that probably some five more times in this chapter. I am the bread that has come down from heaven. I am the bread that gives you life. He said earlier on in verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. And they respond, how can we work for this bread? Where is it? How can we earn it? And he tells them in verse 29, this is the work. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. You want to partake of the bread from, he from heaven? You want to be fulfilled? You want to be satisfied? You want to have life? Jesus said, believe in me. That's just too easy for some people. 
I got to work, don't I? I've got to partake in the sacraments and I've got to, you know, bow this many times to Mecca and I've got to turn this way and that way and jump through this many hoops and give this much money and I've got to do all these different things and then I can just earn his love and his favor and then I can enter eternal life. And Jesus said, this is the work. Believe in me. I love that about Christ. I love that about the gospel, about our Christian faith. Believe on him. Feed on him and have everlasting life. That's the good news, isn't it? The moment we try to start working our way to heaven, trying to earn God's favor, is the moment we need to get our eyes back on Christ in his word and realize that he paid it all. He did all the work. We just need to believe in him. And from then on, the good works will pour pour forth in our lives. So did the Jews accept this? Did they say, okay, you are the bread that's come down from heaven. We just saw you, Jesus, in the last chapter, or earlier on in chapter 6, he fed 5,000. They saw the miracles. They're hearing his words. Are they receiving it? Get down to verse 41, John chapter 6. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling. Instead of receiving him like the shepherds, excited, glorifying, and praising God, and by the way, these shepherds, I mean, here's the announcement. Here's the great news. Here's the sign. Go see a baby in a stinking manger. Most people would have complained. That's the sign? That's what we're to rejoice in? You want us to go to Bethlehem to go see a baby in a feeding trough? Yet they didn't stumble over that. They were excited, joyful, praising God. And yet Jesus said to these Jews, I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. And in verse 41, The Jews, therefore, were grumbling because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And I don't believe they were grumbling because they were saying, he's not really bread. I think they understood that Jesus is using a figure of speech here. They're just saying, he didn't come down from heaven. And why are they saying that? And the answer is in verse 42. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? We know Jesus. We know his dad. It's Joseph. We know his mom. It's Mary. And if you read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 55 and 56, people in his hometown were saying the same thing. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is his mother not called Mary? And his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And we even have his sisters here. And it says they took offense at him. We know what's going on here, Jesus. You're some fraud. We know your parents. We know your siblings. There's no way you have come down from heaven. One problem. They didn't know. They didn't realize that he was born of a virgin. They didn't read Luke chapter 1, verse, I believe, 37, when the angel said that with God all things are possible. Because even Mary at one point was like, excuse me, I'm going to bear forth a child. I'm going to bring forth a child. I'm a virgin. And the angel tells her, with God, all things are possible. And the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. So what I see here in verse 42 is the same mentality I see by many today. I see it by those people in that poll that I read earlier. 50% or so of America that say, we don't believe in the virgin birth anymore. We don't believe Jesus was laid in a manger. We don't believe these archaic things We have science. We have iPhones now. We have the internet. We're intellectual. We're smart, you see. We know we have knowledge. 
Just like they said here, we know his parents. Come on, virgins don't give birth. Apart from God, they don't. Take God out of the equation and you're left with foolishness, as it says in Romans 1, professing to be wise, you have become fools. That's the world we live in today. We will look foolish to many people as we continue to hold to the things that we've talked about tonight, to hold to these truths about Christ and who he is and that he's from everlasting to everlasting and that he came in this world through the Virgin Mary in this manger to die on the cross ultimately for our sins and rise on the third day. All those things are in question today, but we know they're true. God's word is true and we can believe these things and have confidence in his word. So it wasn't any normal birth. He wasn't any normal person. He's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, God the Son in the flesh. Yet he submitted to his heavenly Father. He submitted to his earthly parents, his so-called parent, Joseph, because he wanted to take on flesh and blood to to go through what we've gone through in life so that he could die for our sins. Listen to what Hebrews 2.17 says. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like us. That's why he came into this world. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Because apart from him coming into this world as a baby, growing up, going through the same temptations as we go through, yet being without sin and ultimately conquering Satan on the cross and sin and death, dying and rising again, it's the only way that you and I could be saved, could be reconciled to the Father and live with him in eternity. That's the good news of Christmas. May we proclaim it now and forevermore. So Jesus is greater than any king. He's greater than Solomon, greater than David, greater than Caesar Augustus, greater than any so-called high priest, greater than any commander-in-chief or any so-called lord, greater than any city, greater than any kingdom, greater than any tradition or festival or game. And there's no greater joy, no greater love, no greater peace than that that could be found in Christ. He's the bread that came down from heaven. May we find life in him. Jesus is greater. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for sending your son into this world to die for our sins. We thank you that Christ had to come to take on flesh and blood to be like us to save us as brethren, as Hebrews, as Hebrews states, Lord, that him who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf, that we might become the children of God in him. We thank you, Lord, for Christmas. We thank you for Christ. He's greater than all kings. He's greater than everyone. And we put our faith and trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I think we're gonna take communion take a couple minutes just to examine ourselves, to humbly go before the Lord and give our lives to him. So if you'll stand with me for just a couple minutes.